All righty. Let's see if we can find our way back to our seats. This is the best part of church. Sorry to, sorry to interrupt. <laughs> okay, turn to your neighbor and say, Beautiful. Well, good morning, everybody. For those of you that don't know me, I'm Dana Buck. Uh, Pastor Kevin's like, uh, what do they call it when you're in a play and you're the understudy? Yeah, Pastor Kevin's understudy. So Pastor Kevin has been in Saboba, California, at the Indian Reservation all week with the mission team. They're on their way back apparently tonight, flying in, so just pray for a on-time flight, and uh, it was really funny. Yesterday, I was sitting down having coffee. It was probably about 8 o'clock in the morning, and my phone rings, and it's Krista, who is our youth leader here, and so I answer the phone, and uh, there's calamity on the phone because she has uh, all the teenage girls in her car, and they're driving to the beach. Yesterday was their fun day after their week of, uh, of serving, and so the, <laughs> she had, I think she had six teenage girls in the car, and they were uh, in various stages of excitement, knowing they were going to the beach. I, w- I was thinking in the moment, as I'm listening to that, because I'm used to them, I would love to, like, now let's switch to one of the adult cars. <laughs> <laughs> what, do we have to go to the beach? I want to take a nap. That's probably what was going on in the other cars. But I'm sure that they had an awesome time. And uh, I especially think about those teenagers that are learning to lay down their lives. You know, they're other than, you know, their parents and their other good influences they have, they're told by media and by society that you're the center of the universe, right? You're the center of your universe. And so <clears throat> when you go on a trip like that, some of that is unlearning the things the world tries to teach you. And it's amazing uh, when you get to see that transformation happen. So I'm really excited to hear the reports and stuff that are going to come back uh, from that trip. I think it's going to be pretty cool. Um, Man, I told Ashley, Ashley had to run off. It's Janari's birthday. I, don't, I just found this out from Ashley. They're all out at Westport uh, celebrating Janari's birthday. Ashley and Mitch drove all the way in this morning to do worship. And now they're on their way back out. So that's the worship leaders that we have in this church. I don't know, what a blessing. I just found that out just talking to her right now. So Ashley, if you're going to watch the recording or if Toby and Janari, if you're there, you got, a, you got some great kids who love Jesus. And I told her when I walked up here, I think that word she had at the end was so powerful. And I said, I told her, I go, that'll preach. I should just put away what I was going to do and just talk about that. Because when she was talking about, you know, where do we go for our comfort, right? Do we turn on the TV? Do we, you know, grab a snack? Do we thumb social media? I'm convicted because I turn on the TV, grab a snack, and thumb social media. So, man, I'm in real trouble. But, no, that's, you know, it's such a good word, and it actually relates, relates a little bit to what I'm going to talk about today, because there are things in our lives that in and of themselves that are benign, right? Benign just means no harm. They're not good. They're not bad. You know, we talk about, usually when we hear the word benign, uh, somebody's had something removed from their body, and they test it, and they, the good news you always want to hear is, it's benign. It's harmless. It's neither good, it's neither bad, it's just benign. And so there are a lot of things in our lives that are benign. Food, well, we need it, you know, but a snack, that's pretty benign. TV, well, you know, (laughs) depending. Um, But overall, you know, the thought of it, you know, we're, we're all people of faith here and we all watch TV, so we make our decisions, but it's benign, it's not sinful. 
Um, social media, again, that can go nuts or crazy, like a lot of things in life can. Um, and that's really the warning that Jesus, and the Bible gives us about idols, isn't it? Idols are, when Ashley put it in those terms, it was so cool, because what do we put in place of running to Jesus for our comfort and for our peace? And anything that we do that with becomes an idol. The benign now switches, and it's not so benign anymore, right? So, man, I just thought that was that was such a such a good word from her. That'll Hester Alex, we'll have to stick that in our Rolodex or something. And anybody, everybody here knows what a Rolodex is, right? Good thing my teenagers aren't here. They'd go, Rolodex? What's that? A fancy watch? <laughs> I tell you what, it's so cool. That, uh, there's Ramel. Ramel, do you know what a Rolodex is? Yeah, I didn't think so. Okay, yeah, it's so cool to hang out with teenagers and talk about stuff, and they just like go, eh, "What the heck is that?" Hey, we are, uh, Kevin gave me this first quite a while ago because obviously he knew that he was going to be in Saboba this week, so we had actually worked out for me to talk this Sunday about a couple of months ago. Oh yeah, does anybody need a Bible? Andrea's got them in the back. If anybody needs one or wants one, just raise your hand and she'll be happy to bring one to you. Um, we are in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, and let me just, I'm going to read this right now, and then we're going to go back and we're going to take a good look at this. So... 1 Peter 5, 1, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings and the one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. And this is the meat of this right here. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Now, I've heard this verse preached on, taught on before, and I'll have to say most of the contexts where I've heard that is it's talking about pastors, right? If you ever see your flock, don't be greedy for money, da 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 And so... It would be super easy for us as non-pastors, the only pastor here. I told Pastor Alex, pressure's on because the pro's here, so I gotta, can't do anything weird. Um, but, you know, it would be so easy for us as lay people to just like, uh, oh, that's for the pastors, and then just skip over it. You know, at five, yeah, First Peter 5, 1 through 4, that really doesn't have much to do with me. But we are all shepherds. We are all shepherds. Before I go into that, let me just say that I, I love the fact that it's Peter that's writing this to us in this way. Peter, obviously, walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, heard Jesus' teaching, and in everything that Jesus had to say to him, and Jesus had a lot of metaphoric parables that talked about him as a shepherd, right? The, the sheep know the shepherd's voice. Um, that, uh, you know, you lead the 99 and find the one, the good shepherd. And so that had been a part of Jesus' teaching, and so Peter was very familiar with that. Um, that's what a parable is, and I'm going to read you a parable uh, in a little bit. But a parable is basically a story that illustrates a point. And Jesus was really good about that. And he would just take, you know, let's talk about the wheat. Let's talk about the weather. Let's talk about a fig tree. Let's talk about sheep. 
Let's talk about wolves. I mean, he would pick things that were very common to their understanding to help them grasp a point that he was making. And so Peter was real familiar. Sheep was a big part of Jesus' repertoire when he would tell stories and when he would teach. But here's what's especially beautiful about Peter writing this, is when you think about Peter's restoration after he denied Jesus. And if you remember, at the Last Supper, Jesus told them what was going to happen. And, you know, typical Peter, ready, fire, aim. You know, that's Peter. And Peter, everybody else may leave you. I will lay down my life for you. I will never leave you. I will, buy, you know, I'll fight all this. And I truly believe Peter meant it in the moment. Don't we say a lot of things that we mean in the moment? You know, and then sort of the rubber meets the road and, you know, whatever. And Jesus looks at him. He goes, I'm just telling you. Before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny you even know me. You're telling me right now you're going to lay down your life for me? You'll deny that you even know me. And what was even more humiliating for Peter in that moment, who confronted him was a little girl. Hey, I think I know you. Weren't you with Jesus? This little girl. And Peter completely caves in this recognition by this, by this girl. And so how devastating is that? for Peter. And, you know, Jesus was risen. He'd appeared to the disciples. There's no record of any interaction. Like when Jesus appears to the up, in the upper room, the whole thing with um, Thomas, you know, I need to put my fingers in the nail holes. Jesus appears twice in the upper room. And it says the disciples were there. You have to assume Peter was probably there. But if I'm Peter, I'm making sure Nathaniel and James are in front of me and I got my head down. I mean, there's no story of any interaction or restoration between Peter and Jesus. And then, you know, Jesus, bing, he appears and he interacts with them and then he's gone and it happens again and Thomas has his thing. And there's just no story to us about what happens with Peter. So they're not sure what's going on. They head back to the Sea of Galilee. They're fishermen. So like, hey, we're going to go back to the beginning. And they fish. And they fish all night. They don't catch anything. And um, all of a sudden, there's this voice from the shore. Throw your net to the other side. Have you caught anything? No, we haven't caught anything. Throw your net to the other side. Now, that boat was probably, you know, five feet wide, six feet wide. That had to seem like the most ludicrous, you know, fishing, uh, you know, advice ever. Like, oh, just pick it up and throw it five feet to the other side. Um, and they do it, and the net is full of fish. And Peter, in that moment, knows who's calling from the shore. He gets it. He knows who's calling him. And typical Peter, what does he do? Does he grab the oars and row the boat in as fast as he can? No, he dives over the side and swims. That's Peter. Everybody else has to hassle the fish and hassle the boat. And Peter swims into the shore. And there's Jesus, and he's got a fire, and he's cooking fish. And this is the first recorded interaction that Peter has with Jesus. And Jesus looks up to him and says, Peter, do you love me? Peter goes, Lord, you know. You know I love you. He says, feed my lambs. It's a good shepherd. But now Jesus isn't talking about himself as the good shepherd. Feed my lambs. He's transferring that mantle to Peter. Simon. In fact, he didn't even call him Peter. He called him Simon. Simon, do you love me? God, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Third time, Simon, do you love me? God, you know I... Not God, Jesus, you know I love you. Feed my lambs. Three denials... Three words of restoration. And Peter was restored. But not only was Peter restored, in that moment, Jesus passes the mantle to Peter. You're the good shepherd. 
feed my sheep until I return. And now, in 1 Peter 5, Peter is passing that mantle to us. He's passing that mantle on. We are all shepherds. Now, some in a paid facility, Pastor Kevin is certainly the shepherd of this church. Pastor Alex was the shepherd of this church um, when he was pastor of this church. And that's not to say that uh, when you look at this, you don't think about it in the terms of pastors and their official duties. But we are all shepherds. Are you a boss at work? Are you a coach? Are you a teacher? Are you a neighbor? You have a family? These are all flocks, some of them small, some of them large, that God has put in our pathway for us to be shepherds. Um, I have a couple of neighbors that live down and across the street from me. They're 13 years old. One's name is Kira and one's name is Riley. And uh, anytime my garage door is open, Riley and Kira will be in my driveway. Um, whatever reason, they just have, they call me Mr. Dana. They run down the block, Mr. Dana, what are you doing? And I'm, you know, I'm woodworking or, you know, I'm doing something, Mr. Dana. And then they jibber, 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 jabber, jibber, jabber, and we talk and whatever. And um, I came to realize at one point in those interactions, Riley and Kira are like my flock. I'm the shepherd in that moment because in that moment, God has brought them to me. And it says that not grudgingly, but willingly, and there are times, you know, I got the Mariners game on the radio, and I'm working and whatever, and Riley and Kira come in the garage, and I got to turn the Mariners game off so we can talk. And I try not to do that grudgingly, but to say, in this moment, this is the most important thing for me to do. The question is, are we going to walk through life with our heads up? And what I mean by that is, are we going to be aware of the situations where we are called to shepherd? Um, some of them, like I said, are super obvious, and we need to be aware of those, obviously, and taking all the advice that Peter has for leaders, but in others, it may not be so obvious, the shepherding that we get to do. But if you were playing the game of life and the game of your walk with Christ with your head up, I learned that as a basketball player years ago, if you're going to dribble the ball and be effective, you can't be looking at the floor and the ball. That's your temptation. Because you want to look the ball to the floor and you want to look it back to your hand. And so when basketball players play early, they play with their head down. And what happens? You don't see what's going on, on the court. Is somebody open? Is somebody running a play? You don't know because your head's down. If you want to be a good basketball player, you learn to play with your head up. You learn to you practice. And you practice to bring that ball back from the floor so you can scan the entire floor and see what's going on. So you see the opportunities. And then you can make those things happen. That is the way Jesus calls us to live our lives, with so the head up. I don't think it's any accident that the Bible tells us that he is the lifter of our head. Amen? And sometimes we think about that as, oh, I'm depressed and down, and he'll lift my head. And that's certainly true. But I think more in the day-to-day, -day, he's the lifter of our head, so we will see where we need to be the good shepherd, because this is the mantle he's passed to us. Where can I shepherd? And I just want to encourage us all to think about that in terms so much broader than a pastor, an elder, a deacon. What Cindy does with, um, with Adult and Teen Challenge, which is awesome, that's your flock. It's so obvious when I'm there. That's your flock. 
And so some of those things, we take those on, knowingly and willingly. There's sign-ups in the, in the foyer right now to be a Sunday school teacher. Go be a shepherd. They won't bite you. Not hard. They, their teeth are little. Their teeth are really, really tiny. Um, but that's an opportunity to be a shepherd for 45 minutes, you know, once a week. Be a shepherd um, to those kids. It's pretty awesome. Now, he also says this, don't do it grudgingly, but do it because you are willing. I've talked about this before. It's frankly one of my favorite topics. Um, attitude, motivation is known to us and God. We can do things that look really good and look like real service and look like real whatever. But if inside I'm like, I'd rather be anywhere but here right now. These dumb, I wish these kids would get out of my garage. They're bothering me. I mean, yeah. Now, I may not be doing that outwardly, but am I doing it inwardly? Attitude and motivation uh, are only known by us and God. And so the purity of what we do and the purity of our motives, that's one of the things that we need to constantly um, be checking. Am I doing this because I'm willing? Or am, or am I doing it even for other reasons? Am I doing it for credit? Am I doing it to look good? Am I doing it because I want to have influence with the person that I'm, you know? I always joke and I say, you know, if you want to have friends in your life, Tony, you'll know this is true. If you want to have friends in your life, have two things, a pool and a truck. <laughs> right? Yeah. When I was growing up, we had a swimming pool. My dad uh, moved into a house with a pool. Man, we had friends. We had a lot of friends. And, uh, you know, you always hope that those friends are the ones that really want to be your friends. But, you know, if you've got a truck, everybody's your buddy, you know, because they got stuff they want to move and they got stuff they got to do. So, yeah, but only God sees our attitudes. Not greedy for money. And um, I'm a little bit bummed, actually, that Peter said not greedy for money. And he just didn't say not greedy. Because I think it's too easy to go not greedy for money, check. And then move on. Because we can be greedy for a lot of things as a leader. I'll tell myself a little bit. I sort of practiced this message on Wednesday. I was at World Vision, and I did chapel for uh, World Vision. And this was what I talked about. And I talked about it in the terms of being leaders and leadership. Leaders can be greedy for a lot of things. Um, we can be greedy for credit. We can be greedy for acknowledgment. We can be greedy for power and control. Um, but what a true leader learns is the success of those I'm leading is my success. The success of those I lead is my success. But often our personal stuff or whatever won't stand for that. And so it's about the credit. It's about, or it's about guarding your own reputation at the expense of somebody else. I'm really into Chinese proverbs lately. I don't know why, but I did that last time. But there's a great one that basically says, victory has many fathers, but defeat is an orphan. And so we like to, you know, the victory, everybody rallies around, yay, yay, yay. But defeat is an orphan. Where are we going to be in victory? Are we going to be pointing to those that had a great deal to do with that? And in defeat, um, are we pointing to others that... Maybe we want to be recognized for that. A good leader recognizes that their success is based on the success of those they lead. Here's another thing I would say, too. Um, 
and I should have looked up the verse. I was going to do this, and I apologize that I didn't. Um, but there's a verse in the, one of the Gospels that talks about how when people, Jesus says, when you give, don't even let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. Do your giving in secret, right? Don't do like the, the hypocrites do. That's the word he uses. Don't do like the hypocrites do and blow horns and put up a banner and go, here's my tithe, here's my money, look at all the great things that I'm doing. It says basically to, um, to do that in secret. And what happens if we do that? You have received your reward in full. In other words, if I do it for the praises of men, then the praises of men is the fullness of my reward. That's all I get. God like goes, I had a crown of glory for you. I had a little jewel I wanted to pop into your crown that you're going to get you know, in the, uh, in the great judgment, but I'm going to put that jewel back in my pocket because you did it for the praises of men and not for me. And so it says, when you do things for the praises of men, then you receive your reward in full. Do these things in secret, and your reward will be from God. It's the same thing on the whole credit thing. If you do it on behalf of the, that, my actions, my success, my whatever it is that I did is an act of glorifying God, then God has a reward for you beyond that. If you do it for the praises of men, then that's it. Congratulations. I hope the applause, you know, works. You know, one of the things I said to the folks at World Vision is if your money is one of those things that's benign, it's neither good nor bad, right? Money is just money what it is. And the Bible does says that he doesn't say, we, this, this verse gets misquoted all the time, money's the root of all evil. You ever heard that? Money's the root of all evil. What is it really? The love of money. The love of money. In other words, the idolization of money is the root of all evil. Not just money, but so many other things. And so Peter talks about if you do these things, a crown of glory will be given to you that will never fade away, which sounds so beautiful because here's the truth that I learned through many, 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 many years of working. There is always going to be somebody making more money than you. There's always going to be somebody who has a better title than you. There's always going to be somebody who has a nicer office than you. And if those are the things you're striving for, if your motivation is to do that, then the only thing that happens is you step up to the next level, and guess what? There's still another level. It is a treadmill. And if you're doing things for money, for the raise, now again, getting the raise, being paid, being paid fairly for what you do, that's a very biblical concept. The worker is worth his wages. So it's not that, but if that's your prime motivator, and I'll tell you, a raise is like a hall closet. You stick another shelf in that closet, yay, I got more room, yay, 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 and you go back in a week and it's like it's full. It's like, dang, I put another shelf in there. The euphoria you get from that raise will fade away. And now it's like, what's the next raise? I, I talk to young people all the time about jobs and whatever, and to basically say, you know, you can look at it based on the pay and based on the, you know, the whatever, but at the end of the day, that pay is going to kind of fade into what it is, and you're going to be doing something eight hours a day. And you better decide if you want to do that. Does it fulfill me? Is it, do I feel good about who, what I'm doing? Do I feel good about who I'm doing it for? Because if the paycheck is your number one motive, then that means you're, and, and everything else is kind of falling behind that, that means you might be pretty unhappy for most of your week. There's other things to consider 
than just money. God will take care of our needs, amen, if we follow his precepts. Be eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you. A leader, above all, is a servant. That's what Peter is saying here. If you're a leader, then you're a servant. I just love the oxymorons of being a Christian, right? Hey, you want to find your life? Yeah, lose it. You want to be first? Yeah, be last. You want to be, you know, you want to be a leader? Yeah, go serve everybody. It's like God's economy is not the world's economy. It's always going to be different. If you want to be an effective leader, then you have to be an effective servant. That's what Jesus taught about the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life on behalf of his sheep. It's about the success and not how good he looks. Boy, my staff is awesome. Look at this sling I got. I got a nice robe. It's not about those things. It's about, is your flock healthy? Right? That's going to be the measure of your success. Um, I can remember, uh, <laughs> anybody know, if you're in the Army, you know this. What does RHIP stand for? Anybody know? Oh, come Whoa, louder. Rank has its privileges, R-H-I-P. What a great acronym. You know what that basically means? The higher you are, then the greater privileges you're going to get. I can remember uh, a worker at World Vision very close to me who had a boss, and she would put out this calendar for the year because they had to plan out their vacation time because you had to always have people in the office, right? And so she would say, okay, I'm going to put out the calendar, and I want you guys to mark out the, the days that you want to have vacation. And so this calendar would come out, and her name would already be on there. A couple of days after Christmas, a couple of days before Christmas, the days before Thanksgiving, the day after the 4th of July, uh, the day after Labor Day, the day after Memorial Day. Her name would already be, uh, be on all of those days. And then the staff would get it. And that was literally her answer. RHIP, rank has its privileges. Um, it's not really conducive to a staff that's going to go above and beyond the call of duty when you need them to. You know, as a leader, you make deposits in the bank of good faith because you know what? You're darn well going to make withdrawals. You're the servant when you're the overseer. And if you can do that, you receive a crown that will never fade away. And then last, he says, be an example of all this, of all of these precepts of all of this teaching the last thing peter says is be an example in other words just it can't just be your head knowledge it has to be in how you conduct yourself and in how you do your business when i started at world vision that was where i worked for 38 years uh, i was 21 years old it was 1979 it was in southern california and i was hired into what in those days they called data processing they had just gone, this is no lie, they had just moved off of punch card computers when I went in there. Okay, other well, guys probably don't even remember that. Um, what? Yeah, we have cars, yeah, little Flintstone cars that we would run, yeah, yeah. Uh, how many of you guys have a printer in your house, a computer? You can print stuff in your computer. Yeah, most people do. Um, back in those days, World Vision had one printer for the entire organization. Remote printers, nobody even knew what that was. And that printer was about the size of a Mini Cooper car. 
And it was in this air-conditioned room because it would run and generate heat. And that was my job was you had to keep that thing loaded with paper and change the paper when something new was being printed. Remember, remember green bar paper with the pinholes? Ramel, just go to sleep right now. Just take a nap. Yeah, just take a nap. Yeah, you remember that? The, the pinholes and the green bar paper and all that stuff. And so, yeah, that was my job is I would switch out the paper. And everybody had to come to that building to get their printouts right? Because nobody had a remote printer. And so I had probably been there a couple of months. I started in June. It was probably, it was probably August. And uh, something happened in the world. I don't re recall exactly what it was, but there was a major disaster that World Vision was going to respond to. Now, you got to remember, there was, no e there was no internet back then. There was barely email, um, but companies weren't really using it. It was more for inter- uh, you know, intercompany communications. We didn't have a phone center other than a telephone center where you would show a show and then people would call in. So how did you communicate to your donors when you had an emergency? Snail mail. That's how you did it. And so what was going to happen was we got the word. We had this big print job that has to be done, ASAP. Take everything else off the schedule. There are special forms that are coming in this truck. It's going to be there at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. We need to get that thing unloaded. We need to get that stuff printed. It's like, okay, we knew the truck was coming. And uh, there was quite a few boxes of this paper. Now, this is in Southern California. The dock door that we had where our computer room was opened off into an asphalt, you know, black asphalt uh, parking lot. And it had to be 105 that day. And so the asphalt, it's just so hot. And the truck, we get the word, the truck's here, the truck's here. Everybody's go out and load the truck. Okay, guys, we, oh, you're in that air, because that was the great thing about working in the printer room. It was air conditioned because of the printer. And you go out and you open that door and the heat just blasts you. And here's this truck and the, the back door opens up. I don't know how long that truck had been driving, but if it was 105 in the air and it was probably 125 with the asphalt, well, in the back of that truck that had been baking, yeah, I don't know what it was in the back of that truck, 140. You could just feel it when that thing opened up. I was like, holy moly. And then here's this piles of these boxes that had to come inside. And I'll never forget this. I had a, a boss, the guy that hired me, his name was Finn Danley. And I look over, and here's Finn. This was everybody's wearing jackets and ties. This was jackets and ties era. And here's Finn. He's the boss. He rips off his jacket. He whips off his tie. And he jumps up to the back of that truck. And he starts handing the boxes down to those of us to bring it into the air-conditioned building. I never forgot that to this day. That's what a leader does. And I would follow that man anywhere after that because he demonstrated, didn't just tell me, but by his example, he showed me there is no job too big or too bad or whatever. We are in this together. I never, ever forgot that. Peter calls us, be an example. And if you are, God, is gonna, God has a crown for you that will never fade away, like the raise or like the office or like the title or whatever, which basically just sort of the, the euphoria just fades out. And then it's time for the next one. But that crown that the Lord has for us will never fade away. Um, when I knew I was going to be doing... Uh, the message this week, I told Kevin, I said, I think I'll write a little story to illustrate this point. So I actually wrote this story specifically um, for this Sunday 
just an opportunity for us to maybe get a little feel for what does it really mean um, to be that shepherd that God calls us to be. This story is called A Tale of Two Shepherds. The pasture is a buzz this bright and early sunny morn ever since the still was broken by the master shepherd's horn. He blows it oh so rarely when there's weather on the way or foxes in the long grass, hungry lions seeking prey, or as a call to meeting, echoing through branch and bough, a summons to his presence, which is why he blows it now. The response is near immediate, no grousing or complaining from the objects of this call, the young shepherds in his training. Racing from the east down where the meadow meets the stream, a young lad comes a-running who his parents named Eugene. His trot is sure and purposeful, his staff a sturdy thing, and bouncing as he races are his shepherd's bag and sling. From the west, where pastures yield to highlands and to trees, comes a youthful shepherdess who goes by Eloise. She takes a well-worn winding trail, which she could run, though blind, and her honey-colored hair unbound makes golden streams behind. The place where each one's morning run will finish and abate, a flat and rocky outcrop where the master shepherd waits. He sits with ease, untroubled, this instructor, mentor, coach. His smile is warm and knowing as he watches them approach. Yet just a hint of sorrow lies behind those watchful eyes as he grasps his staff and rises, smooths the robe around his thighs. Eugene and Eloise complete their journeys in a burst, each proclaiming laughingly, I won, I got here first. The master shepherd nods his head. You both deserve a star. Why, Eloise, your pasture is in distance twice as far. And, oh, Eugene, the shepherd said, you're not run-of-the-mill. Why, your impressive effort was entirely uphill. He raised and spread his muscled arms and pulled each of them near. His words and warm embrace soon had them grinning ear to ear. Now, my young apprentices, the reason for my call I'm going to a distant land, and I must leave you all. I've shown you and I've taught you what a shepherd needs to learn. Now oversee my flocks until the day that I return. Eugene and Eloise each trade their own distinctive looks. Master, I'm not ready, Eloise with worry shook. Please, stay a little longer. There's so much I need to know. I'll never be a fully polished shepherd if you go. The master shepherd said, I beg to differ, for you've brought the attitude and aptitude to use what you've been taught. Confidence and competence are well within your reaching. Eloise, just trust me, and also trust my teaching. I, for one, am ready, said Eugene. I'm set to go. You've mentored and you've shown me everything I need to know. The flock under my care, they won't wander off or scurry. I won't let a single blunder happen. Don't you worry. The master shepherd tilts his head and smiles at young Eugene. You've been a model student, one of the best I've ever seen. But sometimes it isn't what you know that brings about success. It's admitting what you don't that helps you overcome a test. 
Eugene, he bobs his eager head, so ready to get started, not really, truly processing the wisdom just imparted. The master shepherd once again gives each of them a hug. The looks upon their faces gives his gentle heart a tug. Eloise, her eyes awash, smiles bravely through her tears, while Eugene exudes excitement as the time of parting nears. Remember your instructions, and if trouble burdens you, just ask one simple question. What would the master shepherd do? With that, he turned and left them, and they watched him go until that wise and gentle shepherd disappeared beyond the hill. Well, I guess we should get started, said Eugene, his staff in hand. Good luck to you, dear Eloise, you and your fluffy band. Eloise began to give an answer wry and fitting, but that's when she looked to where the master shepherd had been sitting. A bag was left upon the stone. She quickly moved to see what that sack contained. Hey, he left horns for you and me. Huh, Eugene said casually. Well, looks like he made a way for you to call for help if you have a predator or stray. He left a horn for you, Eloise said. May I remind? Ah, sure, Eugene replied. I'll entertain the sheep with mine. And with that cheeky comment, Eugene bolted with a spin. I'll see you when I see you, carried back borne by the wind. Eloise, with hands on hips and apprehension brewing, shakes her head and says, I hope Eugene knows what he's doing. Now young Eugene, for his part, hurried briskly to his flock. All right, my little woolly ones, it's time we had a talk. I'm the one in charge. I've got the sling and shepherd's staff. I'll make all the choices and the plans on your behalf. Now I know you're used to grazing at your own unbridled pace, but the center of this meadow, I am calling that home base. You'll stay bunched together, right where I can always see you. And anyone who wanders, well, I wouldn't want to be you. I'll not be having anyone my spotless record blotch. Not while I am, shepherd, and not on my watch. Day by day, Eugene enforced this rigid regimen and never let the sheep forget the boundaries set for them. His rod became a tyrant and his voice a thing of dread as this green and peaceful glade became a prison yard instead. Eloise also rejoined the flock she'd left behind and right away stood troubled, for she counted 99. One of them is missing, and her angst and fear were great. Should I go and look for her or call to her and wait? Eloise then spoke the words she'd been instructed to. What in this dilemma would the master shepherd do? The answer came like lightning. He'd secure the 99, then go and find the one. No sheep is ever left behind. So that's just what she did. And with a quick, intensive search, she found the stray who balanced on a high and rocky perch. Don't move, my little Fluffy, as she climbs up on the boulder and gently lifts the frightened sheep and drapes it round her shoulders. Then exiting the way she'd come, she and her truant walked, entering the pasture and returning to the flock. Once again she counted, and the tally made her smile, as did the thought the master shepherd had been with her all the while. The days pass uneventfully with lots of peaceful grazing, 
Eloise finds neither voice nor staff have needed raising. She gives her sheep the freedom to move freely and explore, yet always is she watchful with no jeopardy ignored. If their grazing takes them near the poisonous nightshade, she'll gently redirect them back into the sunny glade. Or if they wander over where the meadow meets the trees, where fox or bear or lion could a careless woolly seize, she leads them out of danger without grumbling or a gripe, then sits again contentedly and keeps her flock in sight. Her calm and present bearing reassures her fleecy cluster. They know to listen for her voice because they've learned to trust her. One afternoon, young Eloise sits on a jut of stone that overlooks the pasture while the sheep below her roam. Suddenly, she senses a disturbance on the breeze. The sheep have stopped their grazing, staring at the distant trees. Leaping from her perch and with her back against the rock, she shouts a quite distinctive cry that animates the flock. They all bunch up behind her. It's the warning cry that brought them. The sheep take a defensive posture just the way she taught them. And in the nick of time, because now bursting from the shade, several men are galloping on camels across the glade. Their camels close the distance. Eloise at once is sure. These bandits have one thing in mind, to take the sheep from her. She leans her staff against the rock, unfurls her leather sling, drops a stone into the pouch, begins to twirl the thing. Then suddenly she lets it fly, the missile straight and true. And just like that, a rider falls. Five seconds more, it's two. The bandits rein their straining camels. This was not the plan. They thought a lonely shepherdess would be putty in their hands. And their tried and true maneuver to divide and get behind was thwarted by the quick formation that she had designed. Discretion ruled their thinking, and they bolted from the scene, riding round this stubborn lass and heading toward Eugene. Eloise secured the flock as quickly as she could within a sheltered break between the river and the wood. She turned then toward the slope, and with her energy reborn, she ran with staff and sling in hand and loudly blew her horn. Down below the ridgeline in the flat of the ravine, Eugene patrols his charges packed together like sardines. When all at once upon the breeze a distant sound is borne, Eugene can hear the shrill reporting of a shepherd's horn. Ha! he mutters to himself. I knew this time would come when Eloise would need my help and I'd come on the run. He gazes up the hillside and is frozen in his tracks as camels dot the slope with bandits on their backs. Eugene, he's brave and fearless, and he strides between the sheep and where the bandits quick descend the hillside sheer and steep. He grasps his sturdy wooden staff and quickly loads his sling, but it's then these desperados do an unexpected thing. Half of them break to the left. Their movement is perfection, while the other bandits circle in the opposite direction. Eugene, he feels a pang of doubt, his strategy is confounded. He hadn't made a single plan for fighting when surrounded. He dashes to and fro, repelling raids on several fronts, but he is quickly tiring 
He can't be everywhere at once. His arms, they feel like granite, and his legs, they ache and burn. He cries in desperation to the one place he can turn. Oh, great master shepherd, I have failed you, he cried. I let myself be governed by my cockiness and pride. I'm losing those you gave me. And this admission made him wince. Give me strength to stand and sell my life in their defense. Suddenly a bandit with a saber took a hack. Eugene raised up his staff and deftly parried the attack. But that cutlass split the lumber like a baker slices bread. And Eugene now knew the next attempt would surely split his head. Blood rushed from his face. He stood as pale as bright enamel when all at once his adversary tumbled from his camel. A shepherd's horn then sounded like a cry of jubilation. Eloise was on the hill, her sling in full rotation. Speed and aim were on display, stone after stone did whirl, and the bandits cried, My brothers, it's that demon fighting girl! <laughs> then scooping up their wounded, no regard for prize or pride, they lashed their camel's rumps, and rode as fast as they could ride. Eloise descends the hill at a sure and steady walk. She can see Eugene is counting, adding up the flock. It's a miracle, he sighs, his weary arms he crossed. I don't know how or why, but not a single sheep was lost. I watched you from the hilltop, Eloise said. You were grand, never once retreating from that overwhelming band. She gestured to the flock, these sheep are only standing there because you risked your life for those entrusted to your care. He smiled and shook his weary head. You left out one detail, the presence of a faithful friend who wouldn't let me fail. I'm sorry, Eloise. I just dismissed your point of view. Truth be told, there is a lot that I can learn from you. We'll both learn from each other. And she gave a little laugh. Now, Let's see if we can find you a brand new shepherd's staff. You know, one that's sturdy, and her voice struck a playful chord, and won't be cut to kindling by a measly little sword. Laughter filled the sunny glade, melodious and deep, as Eugene and Eloise shook hands, then tended to the sheep. Leadership. It is a thing that should bring us to pause, so much more than just enforcing standards, rules, and laws. Any leader worth their salt emphatically concedes that their success is shown by the success of those they lead. So, leaders, seek humility. Let pride and power burn. And then the master shepherd bears a crown that's yours on his return. Let's remember that we're all called to be shepherds. Amen? And especially in those places that may not be so obvious not in those places where we're hired or where we officially volunteer or we're officially there, but in our neighborhoods with our families as we coach, as we teach, as we do whatever it is we do, as we're in Sunday school with the kids. Let's be those good shepherds and let's be that example uh, to the flock so that not only will a crown be waiting for us when we're done, there'll be a crown waiting for them as well. Amen? Amen. Your job now is to go out of here with your head up. He is the lifter of your head. Let's play this game with our head up. Amen? Amen. All right. Have a great Sunday.